0: Love being here with you, getting to worship our great God and Savior right alongside you, getting to now sit together underneath the authority of His Word. What a delight. Um, My name is Stuart McCrave. The joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors. Again, if if you're a guest here with us, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. So here's the plan. You get me for this Sunday and the next three. I get the the joy of preaching God's word to you. And then after uh, those, we get some, these are topical sermons. And then we're going to be opening up Acts. And we're just going to be preaching through Acts after that. So we are super excited to, to get into Acts. And to, to see the, the the early church, the beginning of the church, see the the first fruits of the the Holy Spirit there, and uh, we're just we're just thrilled to do that. So we hope you're excited too. Uh, you can certainly be reading ahead. Uh, I'm I think the hope is by this coming Sunday, uh, we'll have in uh, Scripture journals for Acts. We've done this in the past here. Um, they're little little small pamphlets, super cheap. I think like three or four bucks maybe, um, and he's got the text on one side and then blank spots on the other for you to note and jot and stuff like that, so just about, and that'll be just for Acts. Anyway, super excited about that. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to talk broadly about uh, sanctification, uh, our, our transformation process into the image of Jesus. So our, our mission here at Grace Bible Church is disciples making disciples, loving God and people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so... At its core, then, we are about two primary things. This isn't all that we're about, but we are, we are most certainly, then, about two primary things, and, and they are evangelism, that is, preaching and sharing the good news of Jesus so that people might become disciples of Jesus, and then, and then we're about the ongoing transformation for those whom God has made disciples of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about that, that second part there, transformation. As, as one of your elders, I just want to take a moment and say, we love you guys. It is a, it is a joy. I can't believe it. To be praying for you guys, to be encouraging you, to, to be thinking strategically about how we can together be transforming more into the image of Jesus. We love you guys. Your transformation is very, very important to us. I just want you to know that. But you know what's more is that God has called each and every one of us to take our personal transformation serious. So this is a, this is a personal thing for each and every one of us as well. And you know, one of the things I've, I've always enjoyed and always experienced and witnessed here at Grace Bible Church is that that rings true. For Grace Bible Church. We, we do take this serious, and, and it has been a joy and a delight uh, to be a member here for a very long time, to be on staff here for a very long time, now being an elder here. I, I love this, this culture that we have here, and so this morning's sermon is really a, let's keep the pedal down on that. Let's keep the pedal down on that, because we, we cannot lighten up on that, that, that task of becoming more like Jesus. The theological term for Christian transformation is sanctification, Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man, where we become more righteous like Jesus in our actual lives. Progressive transformation is a necessary result of being saved and a sure promise of God. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, as, as an aside, anywhere you read in the Bible about things that we can be sure in, you should take note. Right in this, in this topsy-turvy world, we, we want to know the things that we can be sure of. So if Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's good news. You see, salvation produces steady and often painfully slow sanctification. And we're not talking about perfection here. God knows that while we are here in this life, we will continue to battle with uh, ongoing leftover and dwelling sin. Now, we're going to continue to be wrestling with that, but the grace-filled, empowered calling from our Heavenly Father is to continually put off our old ways of thinking, our old ways of acting, our old ways of loving, and to continually put on the new ways of acting and acting thinking and loving that resemble our Lord Jesus. You see, for those whom God has saved, we're to experience, by His grace, progressive change, progressive victory over sin in our hearts and lives. And so, this morning, we want to we keep putting the pedal down on that. So I got, I got three principles for sanctification this morning. These are the only principles that we could talk about, but these are the three that I'm going to mention to us this morning. Here's the first one. The gospel has functional application for transformation. In our pursuit of transformation, we must not forget the gospel. We never move beyond the gospel. You, you've heard me say this type of thing before. We, we never move beyond the gospel. We, we only move further into our understanding and application of it. We are always living in the good of the gospel because the gospel is applicable to our lives from start to finish. Think of it like this. The gospel is a, is a multifaceted tool of power, not only for salvation, but for transformation describing what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, the Bible brings up specific truths. And, and here's the thing. These gospel truths occurred at the moment of initial salvation. See, at the moment of true faith in Jesus, you were adopted. You were justified. You were reconciled. These are unchanging Objective truths that happened to you in the past at the initial moment of saving faith in Jesus. But these are also the very same truths that we can struggle to believe. And so live in the good of in the midst of turbulent transformation. You see, so one of the tasks in sanctification is to remember these truths. And then to connect these specific truths to the specific areas in life that we are struggling with. So the specific truths of the gospel are meant to get specific work done in our hearts and minds. And when we remind ourselves of these truths, we tend to live in the good of the gospel as we pursue transformation. Often this is our battle in sanctification, to... Remember what Jesus has already done and then actually live in the good of it. So uh, in your bulletin, there's not only the sermon notes, but I got you another little goodie here. Uh, This is a, a chart. Why don't you go ahead and pull that out real quick. It's a little chart here. It's called The Functional Gospel, Applying the Full Range of the Gospel to Our Everyday Lives. And so I want to give us two examples of, of what's going on here with this, this chart. I, I start off with life application. Think of these as sort of like the indicator lights. When these things are going off then you know something's not quite right. So when you look down, first example, you see these same two examples on the back of your seat. So when you go home this week as you're thinking and reviewing about this stuff, you'll still have examples uh, on how to think about this on the back. So we're gonna look at redemption and then expiation. We'll, we'll get to expiation in a minute, redemption. So here's what you're doing, you're looking you're looking down through the symptoms here, the life application, and feel like persistent patterns of sin rule you. Feel like you're unable to experience change. If if that would be you, then you say, Oh, redemption has something specific and unique to say about that, that what Christ accomplished. You see in scripture, redemption speaks to the fact that we all owed a debt due to sin. And we are enslaved to sin and Satan. But Jesus paid our ransom price through his death. He redeemed us, and by faith in the gospel we are free from our slavery, from the slavery and the power to sin, and now belong wholly to God. You see that what means what this means now is that spiritual transformation is possible. Without Christ redeeming us from our enslavement and the power of sin and Satan, we could not change. But now that he has redeemed us, change is possible. See, the presence of sin remains, but the power has been broken through the victory of Christ's death and resurrection. In 1 Peter one, uh, eighteen through 19, we read, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So remembering the gospel truth of redemption gives us specific help when we feel like a persistent pattern of sin is ruling us. We, we all struggle with repetitive sin patterns. We, we've all got that thing or two that just keeps nagging at us. Anxiety. Anger, that that the spirit of contentiousness, pride, lust, what's yours? It's a pattern, so that means it's been going on for some period of time. What's more, repetitive sin patterns are often accompanied with this feeling that you can't do anything other than that. It's accompanied with this feeling of of, of trapped and, and, and being enslaved to this thing. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. And and it happens for so long with so little change that change just seems impossible. If you can relate, you are not alone. But the reality is that when you and I have those feelings, you and I are not living in the, the good of the gospel truth of redemption. You see, regardless of how you subjectively feel, the objective truth of Scripture is that Jesus has redeemed you from your slavery to sin. Sin does not no longer have ownership over you. There is no more power over you. You have been freed from that. Redemption speaks a better word to you than your subjective false feelings. You have been bought out of the slavery to sin by God through Jesus Christ and now belong wholly to God. You see, because of Jesus' redeeming work on the cross, you are now free to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. This gospel truth reminds us that in the midst of the struggle with our sin, real change is possible. In fact, because of Christ's redeeming work on the cross, it's a guarantee. Romans six twenty two says, "Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life." Friends, there is real work that the the gospel wants to get done in our lives. Very specific work to our specific situations. Let's consider expiation. Sin is sin. All sin, whether we perceive it as small or whether we perceive it as bigger, all sin is sin, and all sin required the same atoning death of Jesus for forgiveness. That said, it's, it's not uncommon, though, is it, for, for, for us to feel like our sin is, is way worse than, than other people's sin. What's more, the insidious nature of sin is that it often leads to experiencing shame, sometimes deep shame. Our sort of nosedive doesn't end there. Often, shame can lead to hiding. And this sin shame hiding sequence is is all too common. Uh, th- this sequence is sometimes, and very often, think, something that goes unconscious. But, but, but there are some who consciously live in the shadows, in constant shame, because of their sin, believing that no one else can relate, and there is no forgiveness to be found for them. How about you? This can sound completely foreign can't relate at all? Well, maybe you can. If you, if you can, know that you are not alone. But know that, but also know that the reality is when you and I experience any amount of those types of things, we are not living in the good of the gospel. We are forgetting the truth that Jesus expiated our sin. This may be a new term, But you are familiar with it. We constantly are enjoying this, whether we realize or not. Your sin, my sin, makes us spiritually uncleaned and defiled and polluted before holy God. But thanks be to Jesus that through his atoning death on the cross, he he carried our sin. He removed our sin as, as far apart as the east is from the west. You see, friends, as we remember and apply this truth to our lives, we'll be encouraged to Come out of the shadows and experience the freedom of forgiveness that Jesus purchased for us at the cross. Listen to 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is Jesus' expiatory work on the cross, this, this cleansing us of our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, you cannot cleanse yourself from your sins. Only Jesus can. No amount of shame, no amount of hiding will cleanse you. Jesus was your expiation. He has already, through the shedding of his blood, cleansed you from your sin and washed you white as snow. There's no shame left for you. Jesus was your shame, so that you might experience full forgiveness and a clear conscience. In his relentless grace, God is calling you and I to step out of the shadows, to step out of the corners of our prison cells that we have put ourselves in. And as, as First John passage said, come into the light of forgiveness as we confess and repent of our sins. Brothers and sisters, we can have boldness to confess our sins knowing that in Christ God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness oh that's good news shame in hiding doubting God's forgiveness does not have to be our story because our story is already secure in Jesus in his expiatory work Here's the principle. In our pursuit of transformation, we must, we must never forget. We must never forget the gospel's functional application to our lives. Let, let me encourage you to, to take this chart and, and, and look at it. Here's why. This isn't to puff you up with knowledge. This is to give you tools. The gospel has practical application. And as you familiarize yourself with trouble spots in life and what the gospel specifically wants to get done in your life and in the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we can care for each other through the power of the gospel. Let me encourage you with that. All right, there's our first principle. Our second principle is this. Grace-fueled obedience. We're gonna be looking at Philippians two twelve through 13 for this point. If you wanna flip there, great. Uh, we're also gonna have it on the screen. Um, we're going to cut right into the command that is work, work out, work out your own salvation. We're going to cut right into the command. If you'd be interested in a verse by verse exposition um, of verse 12, actually through 18, um, I did one back in 2016. You can find that on the website. But for our purposes here, we're going to cut right to the meat here. Um, all right, so let's read this. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. You follow along. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the command, the command that we we need to seek to obey, the command is: work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now this isn't work to earn your salvation. This is work out your salvation that God has worked in you, and do so with a great reverence towards Him who saved you. We could say it like this, with an awe. Towards God. Put in great personal effort at becoming more like Jesus in your daily life. Now, the sentence, the sentence doesn't end there. It's like a tragic verse break. I don't know if you've seen these before, but sometimes verses, you're like, why did you put a verse there? This is the middle of a sentence. Anyway, it goes on, right? It goes on to what we see as verse 13. So let's start with verse 12 once again. Here it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For, we would normally use the word because, right? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now now listen, because this is important. This is where we get this grace-fueled obedience from. The word for in verse 13 is making the connection that what's in verse 13 is the cause for what's going on in verse 12. In other words, let's say like this. You work, that's shorthand for verse 12. You work because God is at work in you. That's, that's the shorthand for verse 13, right? You work because God is at work in you, right? So that word for, that unlocks massive theological truths here that's going on within these two verses. We are commanded to work because knowing that God is at work in you. In us. So we work out and God the Holy Spirit works in. And, and what does the Holy Spirit work in? Both to will and to work. The Holy Spirit works in empowering us at the level of our, of our will, our, our desires. And the reason is, is because we're, we're not robots. We, we, we actually have loves and affections and desires and wants and, and hates. We have a will. And the Holy Spirit works at the level empowering our will, our want to, to actually want to put in the effort to become more like Jesus. That's the first thing that the Holy Spirit works in. The second is the Holy Spirit also empowers our actual work, our actual doing. The the last work in verse 13 is in reference to our work in verse 12. In your notes, I I gave you uh, the the, the nifty coloring here so you could see the where they're both green, it's talking about the same work. I had fun doing that. Um, we work because the Holy Spirit works in us, empowering us to want to work and empowering us to actually put in the work. This is why it's grace-fueled obedience. Listen, verse 12 is a command. There's a command by God through Paul, for us to put in serious effort at becoming more like Jesus in our everyday lives. Laziness won't cut it. The fact is, if we are being lazy and not putting in the work of seriously becoming more like Jesus in our the ways that we think and the ways that we love and the ways that we act, we're sinning. This is a command. You and I are responsible for working out our salvation. So, so we're commanded to obey but not apart from God's enabling and empowering grace. So here's what I want us to see about grace-fueled obedience. I want us to think more about this principle. We want to live. We want, we want to live. And we want to read our Bibles with this in view. That what we do, and even who we are, is a result of God's Grace. This is, done, this is done by keeping the Bible's imperatives and indicatives in the right order. Sermon notes. I gave uh, some definitions there uh, that you can uh, follow along there with me. This is important. I, I, I try not to, with all I have, to, to, to uh, bring up confusing things unless it seems to be necessary. The imperatives are the commands of Scripture. The indicatives are the truth claims of Scripture, often seen as who God is or what he's done for us. So the relationship between imperatives and indicatives in the Bible is this. imperatives, the commands, are always a consequence of the truth claims. Or to say it another way, the indicatives empower obedience to the commands. You've heard me say it like this. This is far more catchy. God never commands us to do something, never commands us to do something without also giving us his enabling grace to obey. This is just the way it works. This is the way that God has designed the Christian life, transformation, to work. God never commands us to do something without also giving us his enabling grace to obey. Our obedience is not something that causes God to love us. His, his love, his grace precedes, motivates, and empowers our efforts in obeying the commands of Scripture. Grace always precedes obedience. It's easy for us to, it's easy for us to uh, uh, think and spot the commands in Scripture, and and and, and that's good. We we, we need to uh, obey them, but we also need to see and understand God's enabling grace to obey the commands. Quite possibly, the the the, the most easy, accessible thing that we see actually is is God giving the. Uh, in giving the Ten Commandments. We, we pointed this out when we did, went through that series way in the beginning, early in the fall. So I'll reference it again. Before God gives one commandment to the Israelites, he reminds them of what he already previously did. In Exodus 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then, he, and then he starts giving the commands. You see, their obedience was expected as a consequence of receiving God's deliverance, not as a condition for obtaining it. First God rescued them, then he called them to obedience. I mean, think about it like this, right? If obedience to the commands was a condition for their deliverance, wh- where would they be? they would still be in Egypt. I mean, if he came to them in Egypt and said, here's 10 commandments, you-, you do them, and once you get those right, then I'll save you, <laughs> There'd that, been no the hope. He-, he saved them, and as a consequence of his saving work, as a response to his saving work, they were to obey. Let me give you a few more examples. Uh, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not... Be to, uh, be not Dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, what we have here is we have a a command and a truth, a command and a truth, and then just a a whole bunch of truths to encourage us even more. So we have the imperative, fear not, followed immediately by the indicative, for, because I am with you. And, And then we have the, be not dismayed. That's a command. We are to obey this. How? Here, here's the indicative because I am your God. And then there's just this litany of truths that he wants them to be encouraged by to, to, to go and trust him and believe in him. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And boy, whenever we see that, that the will comes up with what God's doing, that's a promise. I was not saying I might, I will. It's a promise. You can can take it to the bank. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will help you. Here's one I want to give you another one in the New Testament, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right? I mean, as soon as you say Matthew 28, you think of the end. We know where we're going. And we can all think about this commandment of the Great Commission, right? The command of the Great Commission. We we kind of know this one, most of us, uh, the command. What is it? Oh, I got you on the spot now, right? That's, that's embarrassing. It's right there, yeah. yeah. Make disciples, right? Most of us know that, right? We might not, we might not think about all the other uh, caveats to that, that command, right? We, go, make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations. And then there's all those participles attached to the command describing it. Go, baptize them, teaching them. We, we, we've got that in order, but You know, what I want to tell us, though, is that there are two indicative truth claims at the beginning and at the end that are meant to encourage us and motivate us knowing that we're empowered to do this. That this isn't just a good luck, go make disciples. Not at all. Watch watch where Jesus starts. What does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a truth claim. That is a reality of the fact. All authority has been given to Jesus. And then he says, go, therefore. Therefore, as a result of who I am and the authority I have, go and make disciples. That therefore is huge. That's like the four that we saw in some of these other passages. And then at the very end, What what, what do we read? We read another truth claim. Jesus says, and behold, I, the very one who has all authority on heaven and earth, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, empowering you. We know that's true. We look in Acts. The Holy Spirit comes down when Jesus leaves, and he's empowering his people to go and make disciples. And so is true with us as well. Listen, laziness won't do it in our pursuit of transformation. We are commanded to put in the hard work of becoming more like Jesus, but not apart from God's enabling grace. And so God calls us to pursue grace-fueled obedience. All right, one more principle as we consider transformation. This is the grace of gospel community in transformation. The, The grace of gospel community transformation. We're just going to stick right there in the Philippians passage. If you're still there, just hang tight right there in the Philippians 2, 12 through 13. We're going to see this here. We can see it lots of places, but we're just going to see it right here. The, the command to work out and the, the your in verse 12 is in the plural. Now, this is just the, something that we're going to have to learn because the majority the majority of the commands in the New Testament and the majority of the, the, the yours in the New Testament are actually plural, right? We could read this, this passage like this. Y'all together work out your own salvation. That feels good to me. I, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the South in my years and, and I like y'all. Y'all, y'all together, what, does that, no, you all, does that, that translate You all together work out your own salvation. We tend to read the Bible with a very individualistic perspective. But for the biblical authors, and especially in the New Testament letters, the the normative perspective is that individual Christians don't live on islands, but belong to a gospel-believing community. This is why the majority of the commands are in the plural. They're given to the community to do together. Listen, the gospel creates a community. Now, now, seeing community doesn't diminish personal responsibility, but it does magnify the reality that we need each other. The reality is God has designed that our personal transformation best occurs in community. Let's be simple here. We need help. We are Needy people. You, you and I were created and then recreated for community. We were created to need help. And th- this isn't a result of the fall, this is a design of creation. First and foremost, we were created to need help from God, but then, secondarily, God looked at man and said, Nope, needs more help. Created him a helpmate. Principally speaking, we were designed to need help. We need help first and foremost from God and we need help from each other. We need outside help. And this is not a, a, a woe is me, I'm still corrupted with fallenness. This is design of creation. But because of the fall and now the sinful nature in man, we, we tend to push God away and we tend to push each other away. Right in chapter 4 of Genesis, immediately following the fall, we don't read, and then they came to God and looked for help, and they came to each other, and they no, Cain kills Abel. <laughs> this bent towards strife and hostility and rejection and segregation continues, and then Jesus comes. Ephesians 2:14 through 16 says, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us, speaking about Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is reconciling people to God and to each other. Jesus takes dispersed people and makes them into a community that's meant to function together, interdependent upon one another. And it is in this context that God wants to give us grace to together pursue transformation. Our culture celebrates independence. It's ecstatic about self-sufficiency. That's just the, the air we breathe. We, we have to intentionally think other. What's more sin and what remains with us, as we mentioned, is geared towards isolation. Here's the reality. Some of us, all of us at times, but some of us, some of us spend way too much time trying to conceal our neediness, but being needy is one of our basic conditions. For some of us, there's just this instinctual feeling that needing and asking for help is a deficiency. And even if we don't outright think it's a deficiency, our, 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 our sin is still geared to, to, to drive us towards feeling like we, we just don't need help. They do. Not me. Sadly for many of us, our default is, is trying to figure out life on our own. But Let me encourage you, God has mercifully, mercifully, as a choice word, He's not mercifully left you and I to try to figure out life on our own. Our Heavenly Father wants to give us help from the gospel community that he has kindly placed us in. Guys, there is grace to ask help. There's grace to be received in asking for help. Let's let's drive this just a little bit more home. Listen, the reality is when we when we pursue help and receive help, we're simply leaning into the way in which we were created and recreated in Jesus. But, but when we resist help, don't pursue help, we are far more leaning into our fallenness. We're not meant to be lone rangering it. Biblically speaking, in the Christian life, lone rangers are dead rangers. Look, as odd as it may seem, it pleases God to use imperfect people who are transforming to help imperfect people who are transforming. God wants us to experience his grace by receiving help from the community of believers that he has lovingly placed us in. And we know this to be true with the many, many one another commands we see in the New Testament. If we think about it, there's some things that ring true about these one another commands. We, we can't obey them if we're not in community. Maybe what's more, we actually can't receive the grace that we're supposed to from these commands if we're not in community. There is grace to be received living in community and working out the one another's together. This is the grace of gospel community and transformation. Let me just give you two things practically to think about and then we'll we'll wrap up in light of the grace of uh, community. First is just broadly discipleship. Guys, we we were saved to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus by his grace. I want to encourage us to continue. We are a church that does this. I want us to get the pedal down on it, be a church, people who engage in discipleship. What does this look like? This is not complicated. This looks like coming along somebody who may be just a few steps back and just say, hey, can I come alongside you? Can we pray together? Can I encourage you? Can I exhort you? Can we, can we read some scripture together? Or looking at somebody who's a few steps ahead, say, hey, would you come alongside me to pray for me, encourage me, read scripture with me? Guys, we're never going to outgrow the need for discipleship. I want to encourage you towards discipleship. It can look like all sorts of things. Look like regularly inviting the same person or the same couple, family over to your, to your home, getting to know them, building into one another. Could look like a, a short-term group. Maybe it's uh, uh, guys meeting with other guys that they work with, ladies meeting with other ladies they work with over lunch and just praying together, encourage one another, opening up the word. Could look like stay-at-home moms, meet with other ladies right in their neighborhood on, on some sort of, Quasi, semi—I know that's difficult, but you know, a regular basis of some kind. And look, it could be one to one. All sorts of things. Let me also encourage you, though, in our in our context here at Grace Bible Church, it it can most certainly look like engaging with our home groups. We have we have long been a church of home groups, and it is it is it's not a perfect model. It, It is a way that we have put together. First, to have a context with smaller groups of people to live out to one another's. I just want to encourage you. If you're not in the home group, explore home group. I'd love to talk to you about them. You can also find all of our home groups on the website. But these are, these are fantastic groups with people that love Jesus, that want to be more like Jesus, who want to live out to one another together, praying, opening up God's word, breaking bread together. That's always fun. I want to encourage you towards home groups sanctification. It isn't an easy process. It's often slow and painful, and it doesn't look very good. But the promise from God is that we will continue to have small steps of change in victory because of his grace. Let's be mindful as we pursue this endeavor to not leave the gospel behind. Let's make sure that we are dependent upon God's grace as we Pursue obedience and let's lean into the gospel community of believers that He has placed us in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us right where you found us, but not leaving us there. You promised that you want to change us, and that's a good thing. None of us are good and perfect, we need change. And we're so thankful that you want to help us, that the gospel gives us specific aid and help, that you want to empower us towards change, that you've given us a community of of believers to to help us. Ah, That's good. We're so thankful. Father, help us to to not leave these principles behind. Give us more grace to to keep ever mindful of them. we pray this in Jesus' name.